This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I am very excited for this interview. We haven't spoken uh, to a lot of venture capitalists no. on uh, on this podcast. We mainly focus on public markets. But when the opportunity to speak to one of Australia's best venture capitalists comes along, how can you say no to that? Well, we can't, and that's why it is our absolute pleasure to welcome Nikki Shavak to the studio. Nikki, welcome. Thank you for having me. So Nikki is a co-founder and general partner at Blackbird Ventures. They're an Australasian investment firm whose mission is to invest in wild hearts with the wildest ideas right from the beginning. He's also the co-founder of Startmate. So we're going to unpack all things venture capital today with Nikki. But just a reminder before we start, we are not experts, we're not financial professionals, and we are not licensed. So uh, we're here learning just like you and not, nothing on this podcast should be taken as advice. So Nikki, we always love to start these interviews with uh, insight into the story of our guest's first investment. So can you take us back to that time and uh, perhaps talk us through the moment when you first got into markets, into well, whatever your first investment may have been? I think that was at, at university. I uh, started university in 1998 and that entryway into technology was um, through the backdrop of the, the first internet boom of, of um, the turn of the century. And so I think the, uh, the first uh, interaction with investments um, I had had was through uh, Technology companies like, um, uh, oh my goodness, uh, Liberty One and E Corp, and uh, I think there was a web design agency called Spike, and and these were sort of the, I guess the the heroes or at least the um, the bright lights of um, the the original technology boom in in Australia at the turn of the century. Uh, I've got to say, not any names that I'm familiar <laughs> with now. Uh, are any of them kicking along uh, under new names or? As acquired companies, Liberty One and um, Spike were abject failures, and <laughs> um, e-, e Corp was a, a great success. Um, uh, it was actually founded uh, through Kerry Packer or James Packer's uh, PBL, and um, Daniel Petrie, founder of Airtree, and um, Jeremy Phillips, um, who went on to grander investing success uh, at Spark Capital, uh, leading their growth team. In- incredible. People, quality uh, of companies they brought to Australia were eBay Australia and Charles Schwab and um, Monster and a whole whole bunch of sort of iconic um, internet brands from the US and and their uh, uh, set up in Australia. So um, eCorp certainly eCorp was certainly a great success, um, but not the other two. Yeah. Okay. Now you you said you got uh, interested in technology and started investing at that time. You also founded a company at that time, and would love to hear about your experience as a founder before we turn uh, to your experience as an investor. So uh, I believe Bookmark Box was the company back mm. then, and then uh, more recently, um, although. Uh, still a little while ago, uh, Home Thinking, I believe, was the other company. Tell us uh, 
about your time as a founder and those two companies? Yeah, well, the Bookmark Box was uh, more famous for the person I did it with rather than uh, <laughs> what it achieved uh, itself. Um, uh, so I went to university uh, in my university course. I was fortunate enough to uh, uh, to do the course with Mike Cannon-Brooks, uh, who was a founder of Atlassian. Scott Farquhar was also in the, in, the, in the same cohort as well as a whole bunch of um, great people who went on to um, entrepreneurial endeavors. The story of the Bookmark Box, I would say, was um, I always like to say that the bookmark box was my university degree. So I, I, I met a whole bunch of wonderful people at university, but I learned so much more through the journey of the bookmark box, which, um, you know, we raised a little bit of money from Mike's dad and, and, and my uncle and, and another angel. Um, we built the, built the service, um, to, I think it was nearly a hundred thousand users and millions of bookmarks and, um, bookmark box was basically a way for you to manage and share your bookmarks, um, online when people use different computers as they went from home to work or to school and in between. And so, uh, it was a great, uh, learning exercise around customer acquisition, around, um, product engagement and, um, product roadmaps. And we ended up selling the company, um, even a, a funny story there was um, the, the company that bought it. And again, these are all tiny amounts of money, tiny angel around tiny exit. But um, the people who bought it went on to build DoubleClick, which is the backbone of Google's um, ad, ad serving system. Um, one of the other companies that was a competitor to the bookmark box was um, Elon Musk's brother. Uh, so we got to in- interact with him um, through that process as well. And so this was all, a, again, just a set of experiences that summed up to I would say a hundred times the learning um, I I got through the the textbooks and the classroom of my real university degree. That's awesome. In footy, there's, uh, we often speak about the years that produce like an awesome draft. And it sounds like the years at the year at your university was jam packed with (laughs) (laughs) some amazing. Mm. And and I would even say that that particular course, which is uh, business information technology, um, it's kind of half commerce, half computer science um, produced um, wonderful, like year after year entrepreneurs, um, Brad Lindeberg, um, founder of QuadPay, which was acquired by by Zip, many other you know great uh, startup success stories for, from both our year and then um, uh, you know the years before and after as well. So it was um, a fountain of um, entrepreneurial activity, mm. even though it had nothing to do with entrepreneur. Uh, <laughs> so it's uh, every young entrepreneur's dream to have an exit during university. You then went on to do home thinking. Was it as as, as successful as Bookmark Box? Mm, well, I'd say both were not successful. Um, so, so to calibrate, okay. they were, um, <laughs> uh, I mean, bookmark box was tiny, um, home thinking we raised a, an angel round. Um, it ultimately did not succeed, um, for home thinking's fortunes. Um, so home thinking was, um, uh, essentially a, we would crawl all of the real estate activity in the United States to notice, um, uh, which agent sold the most homes for the best prices in the quickest amount of time. And, and sort of when you were thinking of selling your own home, you could, you could search and make this, um, decision as to who to hire um, as your real estate agent in a, in a very kind of data-driven way. And so in the beginning, this was 2005, um, the, the company had uh, success in, in, in sort of driving uh, traffic and, and usage through organic search. And so um, for a while, it was um, successful. And then as sort of the tides of the Google algorithm changed, it, it sort of steadily was chopped down and, and, and ultimately didn't find um, another way to acquire customers. And so that company did not work out. But again, um, a set of experiences that helped me uh, both appreciate uh, sort of uh, online businesses, uh, customer acquisition, and business models on the web, and so you know both the bookmark box and home thinking featured very heavily, informing my views on on, on what is a good business and 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 what is a, not a good business. The really privileged thing that we Bryce and I have here is that we've had so many conversations with so many different people, and you can really start to draw parallels or like you can link different conversations. And and you talking about how you are having initial success and then. Uh, Google changed their algorithm or things changed with Google and all of a sudden the whole business was put in jeopardy. Just gave me massive deja vu to when we spoke to Finder's founder, Fred Shabasta, where he had exactly the same thing. Early success, Google uh, tweaked their algorithm and then all of a sudden the business was uh, had to be rebuilt from the ground up. It, it's just... It's just a really re- real reminder, I guess, and we probably don't need this reminder of just how powerful <laughs> Google is. <laughs> but anyway, Nikki, uh, so you started uh, a few businesses. I think if you exit, that's successful. So I, I don't think you can sell yourself short and say Bookmark Box wasn't a success. Um, but then uh, in the early 2010s, 
you start uh, two things which I don't think anyone will dispute uh, is was successful or co-founded two things that have been very successful, Startmate and Blackbird. I want you to take us back to, to that time, 2010. You've just wrapped up um, your second business, Home Thinking. What gave you the confidence to think, all right, I can start a Australia's like first founder mentoring and education community and start, mate, and I can become a VC? Um, yeah, take us back to that time and tell us the story. Yes. So um, as I mentioned with Home Thinking, it was it was for the US and I was um, I'd moved over to New York, I think, at the end of 2003. And so uh, I was living in America. I was traveling quite uh, often to San Francisco. Around that 2005 period, there were a, a kind of wave of startups that, you know, was called Web 2.0 or user-generated content or the sort of different monikers. But um, through that, got to know a lot of the, say, early, um, uh, like the founders of Yelp, uh, the founders of Trulia and Zillow uh, and, and and a whole bunch of other sort of Web 2.0 startups and, 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 and founders. So had that experience. Um, moved back to Australia around uh, 2010 to get married, to have kids. Um, it was very personally driven rather than, than work driven. And, and as I moved back to Australia, the people that I was meeting here um, were just as good as the people I was meeting in San Francisco or I was meeting in, in New York. So that was sort of the first realization. Then um, Mike and I are still great friends and um, I'd, I'd followed um, the journey of Atlassian and, and how he and Scott had built the company o- over the years. And, and again, that that is a truly pioneering company, um, particularly around the unique philosophy around um, sales and marketing uh, that has driven the, the company to the success um, it, it has become. And so I always had a love of investing and, and I think people think of investing as spreadsheets, whereas I think of investing as psychology. It's it's such a interesting um, game or, or environment to test psychology, whether it's your own psychology, whether it's the psychology of the people that are building great companies. Um, and, and so I had always loved Charlie Munger. He's my favorite um, person and biggest investor influence. Um, Warren Buffett would read everything I could ever uh, get my hands on, whether directly through the annual letters or through the many different um, books written about him or articles online written about him. I um, always like read uh, hedge fund uh, letters. I think you know they're some of the best examples of writing and 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 clarity of thinking. And I'd always enjoyed just even reading those uh, for fun, even though I didn't really have any money to 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 invest in the public markets or in or in startups. And so that investing gene had always been there, and I'd always um, personally you know, read and learnt and um, listened um, uh, around the, the, the craft of investing. And so when I came back to Australia, I was thinking, should I do um, another startup? And I was exploring some different ideas around um, uh, it was sort of like a conversion marketing software where you do A-B testing and you would also have this marketplace of people to help you run a steady diet of, of A-B tests. Um, so I was doing that, but I also had this itch of, um, uh, again, I'd met people that were just as good as the people I'd got to know in America and, and, and wanted to begin angel investing. And so I had the budget for say two, one or two investments per year of 25 K each, um, and began meeting companies, uh, in, in Australia and realized, first of all, 25 K is not going to bring around together or (laughs) make much difference. And even investing one or two companies per year, that's going to limit the the learning I can, I, I, I can um, uh, sort of glean. And so that led to Startmate, which led to um, this, this batch model of investing and batch model of learning as I thought about it as to how to become a great angel investor. And, and, and so that, that was the prompt for Startmate. Also, the the big difference in Australia at that time was in in America and in Silicon Valley, the magic is when someone who builds a technology company helps and invests the next generation, um, invests in the next generation, and um, that was largely absent um, in Australia. You had very successful companies, but they're all very disconnected, and and um, there wasn't that same circle of life or founders helping other founders. And so, the two prompts for Startmate was I could learn a lot more quickly and um, make a lot more investments year as the selfish reason. And then um, the the sort of what the market needed reason um, was assembling this community of founders um, to, to help the next generation. And so that initially was was Startmate. Startmate wasn't, um, I, I didn't imagine it would be a, a full-time job or I didn't imagine it would be a career. Um, but as soon as I did it, and as soon as uh, we completed the first cohort and, and the second cohort, it was just um, so clear, this is what I wanted to do. 
to contrast it with home thinking, which serves um, served real estate agents. Um, if I ran into one of the customers on the street, I'd, I'd kind of duck into the side alley <laughs> versus if he ran into one of the customers um, of Startmate, um, I would run towards them and, you know, embrace them with a hug. It was that difference of um, just truly, you know, e- even on the level of like you, you make friends in waves and you make a wave of friends in high school, you make a wave of friends in, in university. You don't really make a wave of friends. Um, after that with Startmate, I, I, I genuinely made a, a wave of friends, um, both in the startup founders that we invested in and, and, and the mental community, um, uh, as, as, as part of Startmate. So that, that was a realization moment or a light bulb moment for me of like, this is actually what I want to do in life. And, and also success slaps you in the face. Um, if you're launching something in business and you're kind of, you know, reading the tea leaves or you're sifting through the gold pan and you're not quite sure it's like, you know, the saying, um, uh, if you walk into a shop and you have to ask the price of, of a good, um, you can't afford it. If you have to look for product market fit, you don't have it. And so with Startmate, just right from the beginning, it was just so clear, um, both from all of the wonderful pipeline of people who should be doing startups, um, uh, from uh, mentor interest in, in investing and helping the next generation, um, the initial success of the companies that we invested in, it was all slap you in the face, obvious that uh, this this was something that was that was truly needed. And so I think around that time, I was like, why am I thinking of doing another company? Why am I uh, spending time on sort of like this, this software idea when this is the greatest opportunity, this is the greatest imbalance between opportunity and who and, and, and who's looking at it. And so that was the, the personal prompt um, around bringing Blackbird and, and, and teaming up with uh, Rick Baker and teaming up with um, Bill Barty to, to begin Blackbird. And that 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 moment was, um, for me, um, let's try to make an impact through um, investing and, and helping startups to come from Australia and New Zealand and to win this, this kind of global prize rather than startups at the time had been very sort of locally focused, take a good idea from the US and make it work in Australia. And the mission of Blackbird is, can we produce these world champion generational companies from Australia and New Zealand and, and to do everything we can to, to set up the environment for that to happen um, at a lot higher rate than it, what, what it was doing. Mm. Well, Nikki, we're about to unpack the the mission and your investment framework at Blackbird in a bit, but I, I thought we should just mention that we have, we personally know a number of people that have gone through the Startmate program and speak incredibly highly of it. So um, yeah, just thought we'd pass that on uh, and would certainly recommend it to, any, well, not that we've done it, but <laughs> based on the feedback, it sounds like uh, it's absolutely worthwhile. It is a magical community. Yeah. So Nikki, um, Let's start with the name Blackbird before we dig into the thesis and wild ideas. What does it mean? Does it have any meaning behind it? Startups is probably name is one of the first thing founders do. Put an IO at the end, put a Lee at the end. <laughs> Drop a vowel. <laughs> Drop a vowel, <laughs> change the spelling. <laughs> How did Blackbird come about? The name Blackbird um, references the, the Blackbird uh, fighter jet that was developed by Lockheed Martin. And before Lockheed Martin developed the Blackbird um, plane. It had spent um, in the order of tens of billions of dollars, uh, built a team of thousands of people to to design the world's fastest um, fighter jet. And they'd failed, um, you know, it'd run over, it cost, too, uh, cost much more than they thought. And there were a small group of people within that team that said, you know, screw this, this is ridiculous, um, let's break away the Skunk Works project that refer- initially references the, the Blackbird um, fighter jet. And this small team ended up building the world's fastest plane. And I think it still is the the, the world's fastest plane. This was back in the developed back in the, the 70s. And so I think it's this idea that small teams um, achieve things that big teams don't. Like why in business do all of the world's biggest corporations with the already the customer relationships, um, already the revenue streams of an existing product, um, have a front row seat into what's next in um, uh, the future of whatever the, the, their industry is. Uh, why do they screw it up? The innovators' dilemma, and, and and so on and so forth. Why does like a team of nobodies um, who uh, have no money and and very few resources? Why does that team consistently win um, time after time in history? You know, Fairfax. Uh, lost um, the opportunity to seek in realestate.com.au and car sales and so on. Um, why does why does that happen time and time again? And I think it is um, you know small teams beat big teams. Um, small teams don't have middle management. I think middle management kills the creation of something. Middle management is um, useful in optimizing something to take something that you already know is true and and to try and make it work on the biggest scale, but suffocates sort of the creation of new things. Um, and then also I think the constraint of um, 
uh, or the, the the fear of death produces these great moments and these great conceptions of of, of businesses. And so the startups, which um, stare death in the face every 12 or 18 months, um, is a, a much greater motivator. And then when they do succeed, they're succeeded. The level of success is on the founders and employees all become extremely wealthy versus in the big company. Um, if something fails, which it normally does, the person might be fired. If something succeeds, nothing really changes. Um, they don't really get the fruits of that success. And so there's not that same fear of death. And there's um, almost um, to the opposite. It's sort of a failure minimization environment. There's no reward for success. And so I think the structural makeup of, of, of startups mean that despite all of the advantages, um, strategic advantages you could ever want. A small team always beats a big team. And, and so I think that's, we love that idea. The idea is reflected through the, through the name Blackbird. I love that story behind the name. Um, now I feel that our, we need a better story behind our <laughs> name. I'm feeling very inadequate yeah. well, about the, it. And the second test was um, it had to, it had to be pronounced correctly by a three-year-old. Could you say it uh, as, as a three-year-old? And then if you heard it, um, could you spell it automatically to your earlier point around the no vowels and the yeah. um, L-Y and, and so on? So um, if you said it over the phone or over a video call, you have to naturally be able to spell it as well. Nice. So, Nikki, then that leads us into your investment philosophy because uh, you've had uh, some great successes with some of the company you've inv- companies you've invested in at Blackbird. But before we get to the specifics, it would be great to just understand 2012, you and your co-founders are starting it. What's the investment thesis? What companies are you looking to invest in? And I know um, uh, in, in previous interviews, you've spoken about maybe the silliness, maybe that's not the right word, but the silliness of the round structure that um, a lot of VCs fall into. Uh, was that was that a thesis you had at the time or is that something you developed over time? Just give us an idea of how you think about investing in early stage companies? Mm, yeah, first of all, I think I don't think at the beginning um, we had a, a strong view. That strong view emerged after we began investing, and and the first fund of Blackbird was a twenty nine million dollar vehicle, which basically means you can only invest in the first round of a of a company because you don't have enough money to invest in the, in in the next rounds. Um, but the world of venture capital is strangely structured around the round of financing. What I mean is like you have a the, these seed funds um, that invest in the seed round. And then you have a growth fund that invests in growth rounds. And you have venture capitalists that only invest if it's private. And if it goes public, something magical happens to the company. And those people who invested in the private markets have no qualifications to invest in it um, afterwards. So you have to wrap up your involvement with the company and the public markets person um, who's in the whatever asset you know, threshold bucket of the small cap fund. Um, that person's the most qualified to invest in the company now. And then, if that person makes a good decision and the company succeeds and it gets bigger than the small cap threshold, then the mid cap person um, and then the large cap. And <laughs> so it's just this silly way um, that the investment world has structured itself. And it, it, and it is a byproduct. Why is that the case? Um, it's a byproduct of the people that give money to investment funds. So every institutional investor follows exactly the same model of investing, which is the portfolio allocation model. And they divide their portfolio into buckets and they um, want to have X percent in bucket A and Y percent in bucket B. And uh, it's sort of like a bucket way of viewing the world, um, which doesn't make sense because if you think about it through that lens of like the person who meets um, the small cap manager who meets the the company in a hotel room for the pre-IPO roadshow, meets them over two meetings, um, that person is way more qualified and the venture capitalist who has known them for 10 years and has developed all of the context of the market and the product and the team and how the founders run the company and and that falls away. That doesn't make sense. Um, Doesn't make sense for a seed fund to um, invest in a company um, when it's an idea. So before revenue, before product, and um, you see the company succeed. And then you're saying by only investing in the seed round, it's like, well, I would like to invest in a company before they're successful. And as soon as I know they're successful, um, I'll proudly not invest in them, (laughs) which again, that doesn't make sense um, to me. So I think we've reoriented Blackbird around the concept of company relationships rather than, um, you know, particular staged investments. Um, and the vision, um, you, you mentioned Australian venture capitalist, and we don't want to be the best Australian venture capitalist. First of all, that's a tallest dwarf contest. We want to, you know, be the best in the world, not the best in Australia, but you also don't want to be a venture capitalist. We don't want to invest at the early stage full stop. The aim of Blackbird is to invest in these generational companies right at the beginning. Um, 
before they have product and before they have revenue, but invest all through their life and, and both through their private market life and their public market life. The idea behind Blackbird is that um, Australia and New Zealand um, will produce more than our fair share of generational companies. Generational companies end up as the world's largest companies. If you look in the US, most of the top 10 are technology companies, the top two companies, Alibaba and Tencent, um, are the, the largest companies in China. And that same phenomenon will happen in Australia over the, the coming decade, or at least that's that's what we believe. And so we want to invest in the very, very best companies um, right at the beginning, be the major uh, investor partner to them and to figure out a way. Uh, we're not structured to do this currently, but to invest not only through their first decade of their life, um, venture capital funds are uh, sort of 10-year vehicles, but to figure out how we can uh, own uh, these generational companies um, beyond their, their first decade. Now, Nikki, before we um, turn to actually unpacking what a generational company looks like, uh, we're just going to take a very quick break to hear from our sponsors. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So you mentioned there you like getting in and investing in the very, very best companies right at the start of their journey. Can you perhaps to explain to um, the Equity Mates community, if possible, like what does a generational company look like? What is the the sort of key common traits that you see sort of form in the early stages of, of these companies? It comes down to, I think, ambition um, and a sense of responsibility to see uh, that that vision come true in a big way over many, many decades. Um, and so uh, I think at the beginning, you can only detect it through um, the ambitions of, of the idea and, and, and the impact it hopes to make. I think at the end, it's very clear that uh, something is a generational company, something like Amazon or Microsoft or Google. It's very clear that um, they've completely reshaped the way that the world does something or the way that the consumers spend their, their personal lives or the way that people spend their, their working lives um, has this uh, large impact on the world, um, has a product roadmap that lasts many decades. Again, a, a faux pas or a, a sort of turnoff is if someone comes to us and says, hey, here's our exit strategy. Like, why would you want to almost like plan your divorce um, from your relationship <laughs> between um, you and the idea? Uh, I think the sort of truly interesting business stories are where that person is doing their life's work. It's um, both useful in the beginning when it's usually in the beginning, it doesn't go right straight away. And so that that sense of doing their life's work gets them through that, that early tough period. But more importantly, um, when it's clear that something is working, it provides a defense barrier a against um, exiting too early. So the only way that you'll get to a $100 billion company is if you have a really successful business. Again, uh, that is the very, very rare thing, the 99% thing. But uh, in the 1%, so you've got a successful business and you're in that situation, that 1% of companies, you need that person to be almost irrationally um, uh, rejecting acquisition offers. You have to say no at $100 million. You have to say no at a $1 billion. You have to say no. You know, the, the, the Facebook movie um, uh, and even in real life where Yahoo almost um, acquired Facebook for a $1 billion um, and the way in which Mark Zuckerberg considered that offer, why would we even talk about it? Um, it, it clearly doesn't take into account you know, his uh, sort of multi-decade vision of what is to come or dramatically undervalues um, the company's long-term prospects. But in the short term, in the moment, a um, billion dollars looked incredibly generous. Um, but that person and their life's work and their mind is so far in the future. And, and so to get to 100 billion or more, you need, you need that person to say no to acquisition offers along the way. And, and really the only 
credible and predictable and authentic way um, that happens is as if that person is doing their life's work and, and, and does have that product roadmap in their head that um, is like itching to get out and it takes decades to, to come to fruition. Well, Nikki, let's, uh, let's turn to some of the, um, the companies that you've invested in because uh, Blackbird, uh, you know, you, you, you look for wild hearts and wild ideas and you have been pitched some incredibly wild ideas that, that have gone on to be successful. So I think Canva is, is the big name in, in your portfolio. In hindsight, not that wild an idea, just an incredible business and one that has made even Bryce and I designers. So <laughs> kudos, kudos to the whole team there. But uh, another company that people may not be familiar with, but uh, it is a pretty wild idea, Zooks, Z-O-O-X, uh, since been acquired by Amazon, but um, a self-driving car startup from the very early days. Um when you get pitched an idea like self-driving cars very early, how do you even go about forming an investment thesis or like assessing the probability and likelihood of this business succeeding? Mm. Well, so first of all, is it fresh? Is it unique? And and um, certainly back in 2014 when we met Tim Kentley Clay, um, uh, who was uh, founder and CEO of Zooks, um, is that sort of idea fresh and unique again? It's almost um, sort of one of the most common questions I get asked is like, oh, what categories of investment are you interested in? And, and sort of venture capital is actually, uh, well, at least seed round investing is is anti-category. You don't want there to be a category. You don't, the prototypical example of um, Airbnb was weird. There was no on-demand economy. There was no category for it to fit through when the seed investment of Airbnb happened. Um, as Airbnb succeeded and as Uber succeeded, there became the category and there became this sort of comfort in in, in investing in um, a category. Like even Airbnb having someone stay in your house that you didn't know or Uber having someone hop in a car with a stranger. Um, these were like uh, strange uh, sort of ideas in, in the beginning that quickly become mainstream um, as they succeed. And and so you want something to be quite strange um, in the beginning. Uh, then I would also say, um, what is a good idea? Everything is a good idea at a, at a high level, um, but sort of the definition of a good idea is, uh, in, in, in my mind is, is the second meeting better than the first meeting? Is the third meeting better than the second meeting? Does the idea become better as the founder um, describes it in more detail? Usually it's uh, a facade. Usually it's like, Hey, we're blockchain for, I don't know, some other category. And then you're like, well, what does that mean? And then and as soon as you go to the second step, as soon as you go to the detail, it just completely falls away. And so it's this facade that has nothing behind it versus the great ideas. Um, the level of detail in which, um, the founders have thought through the product and the system, um, uh, around it. Like that's the exciting thing is as you go deeper, do you get, do you get more and more excited? And with Zooks, um, obviously it's a very hard technical challenge. How do you have a car drive itself? But the insight or the vision for Zooks was not technology driven. It was to not only have the responsibility of the software, but to have the um, imagination um, to take the responsibility for the hardware that you would, if you could build something from the ground up, could you create something that is truly different, that is more a living room on wheels rather than um, a, a car that drives itself. And then um, the ultimate expression of uh, the business being a consumer service. So Zooks um, being uh, a service where you have the Zooks app, you press the button, the Zooks vehicle um, picks you up and takes you to your destination. The responsibility to do the software, the hardware and the consumer service, but also the reasons why you would want to do that again, um, to have the the fresh user experience, you need to uh, imagine the, the vehicle from the ground up. But also if you're going to run a taxi service, you need the vehicle to run 16 hours a day. And so you need, so you need a huge battery um, in the vehicle. You need to optimize it to be run in a fleet. And so um, uh, in terms of how can you repair them quickly, think uh, Formula One pit stop versus like going to your suburban garage and like, you know, um, custom parts and ordering and thousand different things. And so the business model of a, of a robo taxi service. So self-driving cars, you might think, Oh, why wouldn't you sell the car? Like you can buy a Tesla. But if you think about it from an economic point of view, uh, you buy a Tesla for a hundred grand Tesla 
makes sort of 20, 25 grand gross profit. That's like a one-off transaction. You buy the car, that's it, one revenue event. Versus um, if you operate a robo-taxi service, um, still costs, uh, and it's going to cost you more to make the car because it's driving itself. But that robo-taxi is earning revenue every single day. It can earn hundreds of thousands of dollars per year for many, many years. Um, Hopefully, the, the, the vehicle can be in service for five years, seven years, eight years, whatever it might be. And so it's not just like a little bit more lucrative. It's like um, 100x more lucrative. And so to know that if you have the most lucrative version of the business model, you can get to market quicker. Um, again, the vehicles are very, very expensive. It's not doesn't cost 50 or 70 grand to make. It costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to make. Well, if you're operating a robo-taxi, you can still make your money back within a year. And so you can launch, well, all of the robo-taxi providers thought they could launch um, in the last year or two. That hasn't happened. But, you know, you can now hail a robo-taxi in San Francisco with Cruise. You can hail a robo-taxi in Phoenix with Waymo. And then Zooks have uh, sort of hinted um, they're very, very imminently launching um, their own commercial service uh, as well. So it was two years late. um, But again, um, the choice of robo-taxi as a business model, those three companies, which were not automakers, Cruise was acquired by GM, so um, I guess that could be um, twisted to say, yes, it was an existing automaker. But again, these small teams that had no automotive experience are going to be the first ones to bring this technology into the world. The business of earning hundreds of thousands of dollars per robo-taxi is a lot more lucrative than selling $20,000 Toyota Corollas. Mm. Um, And so I think the automotive industry as a whole will be reshaped as the transport industry. And then also just the... I mean, you think about electric vehicles replacing petrol vehicles, but you think about robo-taxis replacing people who own their own cars. Most of the time, your car sits in your driveway or parked, and I think the utilization is is, is essentially like 2% of the time you're, you're driving your car every day. Versus a robo-taxi, if you can have the robo-taxi um, in utilization, say 50 or 60% of the, the, the day in, in paid commercial rides, for every um, robo-taxi, that's taking 30 cars off the road. So you uh, automatically, uh, in terms of like electric vehicles replacing uh, petrol vehicles, you're taking 30 petrol vehicles off the road with every robo-taxi that is utilized to, to 50 to 60%. And so, again, just so many aspects of the idea, so many um, ways in which they'd thought through um, both why it was possible for a car to drive itself, what the user experience or the consumer experience of the vehicle might be the business model of a robo-taxi versus selling the, the vehicle. Like it was just enthralling and it was just so interesting and so uh, fresh. And and, and so uh, that's what you look for in the beginning. Um, you don't try to um, think, is it likely or not? You just try to think, does it have a chance or not? Uh, you know, in the beginning, and we've published our initial investment note on Zooks, we said uh, it's going to take a long time and they're going to have to raise um, a huge amount of money um, it's completely illegal for a car to drive itself um, back in 2014, it was. And they're going to have to compete against all the world's largest um, automotive makers, Volkswagen, as well as all of the world's largest technology companies like Google and and, and Uber and, and so on. And so those three things are quite daunting. Those three things logically make it a low probability, but you're just looking for some probability. You're not looking for a likely probability. The other aspect is uh, in, in the um, venture capital business, the money is invested over time. Um, and so in the case of Zooks, our first investment was $500,000 um, in that first uh, seed round of the company, but we ended up investing more than $100 million just into Zooks as they progressed, as it became clear that it was legal to drive um, for a car to drive itself on, on public roads, um, that it became clear as to how Zooks would, would raise the capital um, it needed to, how the, the sort of technical progress and the progress of the company overall was a very, very special. It was it was one of the best teams um, in the world alongside Google and, and Cruise. And so as that information became clear, uh, that's when you invest larger and larger amounts. Um, similarly with even Canva, First investment was $250,000. We've invested $270 million just into Canva. So the first investment was 0.1% of our total investment. So if you thought about it as um, in the successful case, um, I'm going to invest um, 0.1% of my total investment in this round. Again, you won't trip yourself up mentally to too much to say the question is actually are they asking the right questions um, and does it have a chance rather than do they have the answers and and has it been proven kind of um, you know mental traps that that you can fall into Mm. so nikki um what would be the wildest idea that you've actually put money into 
Mm. Well, I, I would say um, Zooks would be right up there. It's, it, nice. And Zooks was sold to Amazon yeah. um, in 2020 for uh, more than a billion dollars. Um, but it's still a company that I think about every single day. I think <laughs> I, I, was, <laughs> I was going to ask, are you annoyed that they sold? Like, did you see bigger things and that you think they sold too early? We made money on our investments um, and Amazon with, you know, one of the biggest balance sheets in the world um, by owning Zooks makes Zooks much more likely to come into the world and much more likely to to succeed. So from the idea of Zooks coming into the world, um, Amazon's acquisition um, makes it much more likely. So there's there's no taking away from that aspect, but from a personal um, or at least a, a career standpoint, it is a company I, I still think about every single day. And I think it is such a um, great example of ambition, such a great example of first principles thinking, such a great example of taking the responsibility to see something come into the world. It's not like a piece of the puzzle, it is the puzzle. And I I think over the coming years, uh, in particular, Zooks has a chance to be a generational company. Um, Even with the stock market as it is, um, Amazon isn't really Amazon anymore. Amazon is... um, you know, 90% of the value of Amazon stock is AWS and the retail operations and everything that people know about Amazon um, is essentially valued at zero. And I think Zooks has the chance, if you had to fast forward a decade, has a chance to do the same thing to the, um, you know, AWS is a rounding error of Amazon and <laughs> Zooks is the is the valued. Again, I not likely. I love that, Nikki. I love that. <laughs> not likely and not probable, but uh, a probability of, of, of some sort, given just the economics of the service at, at, at full scale. Mm. Now, Nikki, we are running short on time, but I, I have to ask you a question about valuations because valuations in 2021 in, and valuations in 2022 are completely different in public markets and in uh, venture capital and private markets. So my question is, were we wrong then? Are we wrong now or is it both? I was going to say we're, we're always wrong. Um, whatever <laughs> year you pick, um, there is never a chance that um, valuations will be precisely correct. Um, you know, 2021 was, was 100% wrong. Equally though, um, you know, you think back to 2012 or 2011, um, was $2 million pre-money uh, the right seed round price for Airbnb? $2 million pre-money for Instagram, was that the right pre-money? Uh, YouTube, I think, um, raised it a $3 million valuation. So knowing what you know now about the you know Instagram as a public company would be worth $100, $200 billion um, uh, if it was an independent public company. YouTube would be worth um, $100, $200 billion as an uh, independent public company. Was that correct? And I think that's categorically no. Knowing how many startups got started in that year, so the universe of ideas, um, knowing the probabilities of success. I think people correctly estimate that it's very low probability and um, uh, of working out. But I think what people underestimated was the scale of, this, of the success when it does work out. Again, they were imagining that it might be worth $1 billion, $5 billion or $10 billion, not $500 billion. And so um, I think people were wrong about that. Equally, um, 2021, um, you know, it was not only people drunk on vodka, it was the vodka mixed with Red Bull. And not only was it Red Bull vodka, but it was intravenously um, connected to people's veins rather than uh, orally ingested. And so um, for sure, last year was wrong. But I, I think of it as technology startups and technology companies. Um, the world is still figuring it out. The world, again, to think that valuation is a settled science, um, that, that's where you can make the mistakes. When you think of valuation as a, a constant experiment or a constant process that is being um, added to and improved upon, like it's embarrassing what you know, we teach university people about finance and that it's an efficient market and then use DCF. Um, they, these, they're two of the worst ideas. Um, just to think the human race has not figured out valuation in business. And we are constantly trying to add to our knowledge and to um, experiment with what is um, the signals to pay attention to. Also, just even like the accounting system was um, invented when things were very asset driven um, and, and so very heavy industry asset driven versus all of the all of the value increase in the world's business you know, enterprise value is, is intangibly driven. It, it's non-asset, it's knowledge. It's um, how do you think that you know, Google's product spend is an expense and not an asset. When some company gets acquired, that knowledge or the operating expense becomes an asset as on the balance sheet. So again, I, I just think um, if we think we don't know, 
um, and we're uh, coming from that place and, and, and trying to work out the world is just in this wrestling match with um, how to correctly value companies and especially technology companies and especially at the early stages these are all the margins of error um exponentially increase as you smash these things together mm. we're always wrong but that's that's what creates the opportunity and nikki we we could have spoken for another hour uh, there's so much uh, more we'd love to unpack so we'll have to do this again but uh we are running out of time and we always do like to finish with uh the same three questions um so we'll move on to those the first do you have any books that you consider must read? I always give um, Poor Charlie's Almanac to anyone, um, uh, you know, whether they join Blackbird or, or I meet. Um, it's my absolute favourite book in the world and um, I think I took two things out of it, that it, investing is is more psychology than spreadsheets. Again, people think of investing, you're doing spreadsheets and you have three decimal precision um, and you can, um, this fantasy that you can forecast out precisely 10 years ahead. Um, that is a theatrical version of investing that has nothing to do with reality um, versus the psychology of investors at different times um, when, you know, at the extremes of when things go well and at the extremes when things don't go well and what governs that psychology in, in those extreme uh, moments. And then also the, the, the second um, incredible idea is you can take uh, lessons from other disciplines and other industries that apply it to investing and whether that's through how general society works, um, how biology works. Um, everyone should check out the Santa Fe Institute, which is um, a, a sort of interesting university in, in America that looks at these sort of complex systems and how they all interact. And, and, and investing is one complex system, but yeah, I don't know how, how ants, ant colonies are another complex system and how they work and the dynamics that govern them and, and, and so on are another. And what can we learn from those other systems and apply it to the investing system? Um, so I think that book was so transformational in my life that it's singularly the, the, the best recommendation. Now, the second question, forget valuations, uh, forget the this company as an investment idea and just purely on uh, what the company is, what it does and who runs it. What's the best company you've ever come across? Mm, that is a difficult one because uh, there are many different candidates. Uh, yeah, I feel for you more than most, this might be like uh, picking between children with, with all the companies <laughs> that you've invested in. <laughs> oh, uh, companies that we have already invested in, is that? Uh, oh, no, I just mean generally in the whole universe, but I, but I feel like, you know, you're it might be easier for a public market investor who's abstractly mm. looking at spreadsheets than, than you who so. I would say it's Amazon, but because of AWS, I think AWS is the, is, is the most beautiful business in, in the world. And um, again, in a decade's time will be the largest company in the world. It may be still inside Amazon. It may be still called Amazon, but AWS is, is um, the most beautiful business. I love that. At least until Zooks, uh, Makes it a rounding error Overtakes on Amazon's exactly. yep, yep. <laughs> uh, Well, Nikki, uh, we've absolutely loved uh, this conversation. Bryce and I, as we're going, we keep uh, notes on, in the Google sheet and we've got a big paragraph of notes and quotes from you today. So um, it's been, it's been a, a great conversation and, and one that we hope we can do again. But final question, if you think back to your younger self at university in that uh, cohort of uh, future founders uh, starting that first company and getting uh, interested in tech, uh, what advice would you give to your younger self? Go directly to what you want to do in life. Um, I think uh, uh, I, I was victim to this um, and I see so many um, young people delude themselves into thinking that you know, where they want to get to, you need seven different steps um, and some winding maze to get to it. Oh, I need to join a consulting banking job for two years um, to hate it and leave and to do something else. And and everyone who does that, they're like, oh, I hated it, but um, I, I would definitely don't regret it. Um, I definitely um, would do it again. So like, what? You just said, you you know, uh, so to, to me, people put this thinking of their career as some chess match where you need to do 10 different moves, where if you have a good idea as to what you want to do, just directly go and do that thing. Don't create any interim steps in between that. Love it. Awesome way to finish the interview, Nikki. And as Alex said, we certainly appreciate you coming on. We've been looking forward to this conversation. Not often we get to speak to those in, in the private market. So thank you for, um, for spending some time with us and, and, uh, speaking to the Equimates community today. We are very much appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Equity Mates. We love hearing from you. So drop us a line at contact at equitymates.com or even better, 
go to your podcast player and leave a five-star review. Also, a reminder that the Equity Mates content train doesn't stop when you've run out of episodes to binge. We've got a brand new website, a Facebook discussion group. We're on Instagram, YouTube, and slowly making our way as an influencer on TikTok. Well, that's Ren. So uh, come and say hello and join the community. We'd love to welcome you. Until next time. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Meets Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. 